Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Welcome to episode 95 of the Flying Free Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to introduce you to Barb Spanier. She it has been a friend of mine for several years now. She was one of the very first women to um, help me with the beta program for Flying Free, which has been three and a half years now. And um, she has, so she's been with us since the very beginning. She was married for 24 years. She's actually been out for six years and divorced for five years. And she now actually works with survivors and helping them get through uh, separations and divorces, as well as helping them recover post-divorce. She has her own coaching practice now called Integrative Coaching for Life. And um, you can actually visit there. It's integrativecoachingforlife.com if you want to go check out her services. And I recommend her all the time. In fact, I'm not doing any public coaching or private coaching anymore. I do all of my coaching within the Flying Free group. So I always recommend people to Barb when they come for private coaching. Barb, welcome to the Flying Free podcast. Thank you, Natalie. So good to be here with you. So we are going to be interviewing you today, not on your coaching, but actually on your story. I want to hear your story of how you, um, how you ended up, just your story of how you got married, how you ended up discovering that you were actually in an emotionally abusive relationship and how you got out. So that's what we're all, we're going to talk about today. And um, why don't we start with telling us how you met your husband? And I'm always curious to know if there were any red flags that you noticed that you kind of ignored, or was it just like amazing at the beginning? Yeah, well, we met at a Bible college. I was um, a freshman and he was a returning student. And we actually met because my boyfriend introduced us. Oh, interesting. <laughs> he, yeah, my boyfriend introduced us. I needed, um, our school was in South Carolina. I was from the New England area and I needed a ride home. And he was from New England. So my boyfriend got us together and he gave me a ride home. And if any of you are familiar with um, when Harry met Sally movie, that was kind of our story for the next few years. We bumped into each other. Like he did not come back to college after that, but like randomly we met and bumped into each other like a year later at a mall in Connecticut. Like interesting. Then we bumped into each other again and again. Like we had these random meetings. And then um after by the time I graduated college, I was working at the college. And he came back through the college and bumped into me. And we actually um went to lunch. And six months later, we were married. 
like literally to the hour. Like I realized later we went to lunch and literally to the hour, six months later, we were walking down the aisle getting married. Um, Were there red flags? I don't know that we would have even used that term back then. Red flags. Yeah. Um, I know as I think back and as I look back, um, there was a sense even then, and we talked about, you know, I've always used that as part of my story, is that he wore me down. It wasn't a, oh, I'm heads over heels story. It was, he wore me down. He wore me down with flowers and gifts and bringing me here and all these things. And I was following the script, right? We all have a script of we grow up, we go to college, we meet somebody, we get married. And so I was following the script. And, um, you know, there were things that stood out to me that I remember saying I really liked. For instance, he would make the decisions about where we went out to eat. And in a dating situation, there was part of me that kind of liked that because there was none of this. Do you want to go here? No, I don't know. Do you want to go here? Right, right. Right. So part of me liked that. But then years later, that always continued to be the story. Hmm. So wasn't a red flag. Didn't know about red flags. But as I look back, I see behaviors. Yeah. Right. Um. So I, I believe the only real huge red flag was the night before we got married. We had our rehearsal dinner and after the rehearsal dinner, there was a lot of anger because I didn't behave the way he expected me to behave. In my mind, I was the hostess, so I needed to talk to everybody and make everybody feel welcome. In his mind, I needed to stay by his side. So there was a lot of anger. I didn't know where that came from. I was young. He, 12 years older than I was. Mm. And so there was a power differential there. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know what to do with it. Night before my wedding, got married and moved on. Yeah. Um, so there weren't red flags. I was following the script. We, and there were good times in there. I mean, we did some real fun things during those six months. So what were, once you got married then, what were some of the ways that he psychologically or even I'm curious if he spiritually abused you in any way or used God to kind of control you um, throughout the course of your marriage. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about this and there was so much, right. And for 24 years, it was very um, systemic and, Because this is my story, I think I want to put it in the form of a story, almost like a metaphor. And there there are these 
rats that they use over seas to find landmines. Okay. And they use these rats because they don't want to use humans. They don't want to use dogs, but they use these rats to find landmines because you don't know where they are. You don't know where they're going to pop up. But that is what my job was throughout our whole marriage because my job was to find the landmines to make sure to mitigate them, to make sure these bombs didn't go off, to defuse them, to make sure they didn't hit my children, to make sure they didn't hit our friends, to um, kind of sacrifice myself in the midst of this situation where there was gaslighting, where there was so much um, controlling, there was blaming, intimidation, um, all of these things were going on in the marriage. But the script for me was that I needed to find them and to mitigate this situation and I needed to be responsible for them. And I needed to make sure that um, my kids weren't hurt. And whether that meant me laying down on them (laughs) or just mitigating or diffusing. And, And I think that's the idea of the whole emotional and spiritual abuse throughout the whole marriage is that it was systemic. It wasn't like an incident here or there. And there were, there were a lot of instances. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of anger. So, um, there was a one point near the end of our marriage that I was just like, I wish I could just go a few hours without being yelled at or bullied or criticized or blamed. Like just two hours. Like it would be amazing to just have two hours when we are together in my home to not have that happen. Oh, that, well, that's, yeah, that's, I'm so sorry. So it was systemic in all areas. Um, It's like you're, for me, it was like I was a crisis counselor, like always trying to put out um, the triggers, his triggers, and always trying to um, make sure those bombs didn't blow up. Um, so, okay, so it sounds like it was just constant and relentless. And did it show up for your, did he do the same things to your kids too? Or was it mostly just directed at you? I made sure because 
I made sure my kids did not see a lot of this and it was constant. There was a lot of it. I'm not going to say there weren't great times also in there. There were times that it was really good. There were times of apology and tears, but never any change. Yeah. Never. In 24 years, there was never change. Uh, There was marriage counseling. There was medication. There was... I worked hard because my job was to take care of it. And I worked hard to try to take care of it. And with, and he never was able in my experience to change. So there was good times there were some great times, but for me, I realized I was going to be a great mom <laughs> in the midst of this. And I was going to work really hard. And that's what I did. So was there ever a time when you realized, whoa, you know what? There's like, this is actually abusive. And I, I'm not sure if I can sustain this for the rest of my life. Um. I think I always knew in some instance that it was abusive and that there was abuse going on. Okay. I, you have articulated it like that in your I mind? I articulated it in my journals. Okay. I asked for help in certain situations, but it was never... Um, because it was emotional and it wasn't like he was, um, okay. Like for instance, he would break things, but it would be like a dish. So it wasn't like he was purposely throwing things against the wall. Right. So when you reach out to a church or to marriage counselors, it's, Oh, I just broke a dish by accident. Right, right. Right? So it was, I was really stressed out. I am so sorry. I didn't yell at you. Right? So I did reach out. I tried help. I got counseling. I got therapy. I had us go to marriage counseling. I worked hard. Throughout, the, I read books upon books, and but nothing ever changed because he didn't change. Yeah, that's a common theme, actually. Though I, the I, we're speaking to women. I know there are men who are abused as well. Okay, in, in Christian circles, I've seen it right. myself. But um, this audience is women, and I'm talking to women of faith who are in abusive relationships. But I've noticed this theme that. Um, the women are the ones, they are the ones that are reading the books. They are the ones that are asking, you know, initiating to get counseling and to get help personally, as well as help for the marriage. And yet still people, it's like such a common sign or signal that there's abuse going on and yet it's completely ignored. And, and they end up, you know, actually being told that they're the ones that are abusive. Abusers typically abuse, 
I mean, almost never do abusers actually reach out and try to get help, read a bunch of books, you know, beg their wife to to go to counseling. They, They don't do that because they don't want to be under scrutiny. They don't, they don't think there's anything wrong. Like what's wrong? Everything's great. Right. And they think like in my instance, okay, if we go back to the landmine description, not only do we try to defuse the bombs, we actually get blamed for the bombs. Yes. Like, even when we defuse, it's like, well, you didn't, weren't doing this or this. And in fact, could you do it better? Like, you don't even get thanked for putting a bomb out. Exactly. You get You're the reason that the bomb was put there in the first place. So yes. shame on you. <laughs> yes. And shame on you because you really should have done a better job at putting that bomb out. Yeah. Oh so, my gosh. So frustrating. And that is the, I think the systemicness of it in the family and in the church. And that's the script that everyone is going by. Yep. And that script needs to change. That's why we do what we do because that script needs to change. We need to raise awareness. We need to be talking about this stuff. We need to be exposing the script because it is. And when the script happens in isolation, nobody understands that this is actually a, this is actually a problem. This is a, it's going exactly according to how this problem goes. It's like you, in order to get the diagnosis and then to fix the problem, we need to expose it and, and we need to like gather the data together and, um, and, and see what it is, look at it closely and say, Hey, here's what's going on. Data. Did I say data? Data. I do that all the time. It's data. You guys, if anyone knows if it's data or data, it's data. But if you listen to me, you might hear me say data sometimes. So anyway, um, I'm curious to know then what, what made you decide to get out because you, you were a Christian, you ran in some very conservative circles, I know. And so what made you decide to get out and how did you begin that process? Great question. Um, a couple things made me decide to get out. Um, I was, it, it was getting worse. I was not being able to mitigate it. And I was choosing not to mitigate it as well. I, my children, I had at this point in time when I was getting out, I had college-age children, and a six-year-old. And um, I was had been choosing for a few years. It's really interesting because I think subconsciously I knew I couldn't keep doing this. Mm-hmm. I slowly was working on building my own business in um, online education. I was slowly had started um, taking care of myself, eating healthy, walking, running, exercising. I was in great physical shape. I was running um, three miles like four or five times a week. Like, I think I was 
getting stronger and more confident. And at this point, I realized I was, okay, first off, my ex traveled for a living. So I knew when he was outside of the home, that's when I could breathe. So I realized the year that I decided to leave, before I decided to leave, I had already spent eight weeks traveling because I now had a son that was away at college and I had friends that I could visit. And me and my six-year-old, I worked online, we homeschooled, we could travel. And um, I realized that I was not being able to mitigate the damage as well as I had done previously, or as well as I thought I had done previously. And I started seeing it for what it was. And I, th- I realized um, for me, I was living in a state where I, a state of mind where I was like, when he finally dies, I hope he goes first because then I can at least have a couple of years of peace Mm. because my life is chaotic. Yeah. It is chaos every minute of the time. And yes, there are some good times in there, but you are always vigilant because you know it's coming. Yep, yep. And I had stayed away. There was a five week period. I had stayed away. And that five weeks of being away, it wasn't, I wasn't planning on separating. I just, it just worked out. I had a friend that needed me and I could go. Um, and it was in the summertime. Um, and I realized I just didn't want to go back. And there was something at the end of that time, I was able to clearly in my mind say, I have been living in an emotionally abusive marriage. And that is when I was like, wow, I can do something about this. Um, And part of that for me is when I was away those five weeks, I realized I had support and I had really good friends and I didn't have to walk it alone. That's wonderful. So did you did you share with them with them what was going on and what you were thinking then? I didn't at first because like I didn't even know. Like those five weeks, I didn't even think about it. And then when it came time to go home, I was like, I can't. I, I can't go back to living that way or an eggshell. So I decided to stay a few more weeks and I was like, I And I finally said to some of my friends, just 
I was like, I can't go back. And they were like, what do you mean you can't go back? You have a great marriage. (laughs) Uh, And I was like, I don't. And I started talking to them about it. And they were like, you are in an emotionally abusive marriage. And I spent four weeks and I saw a therapist while I was during that time. And um, it came quick to me because, right, I had already been doing a lot of work within that four week time. um, I made the decision after four weeks, I decided I'm done. I'm not going back because I knew I knew in-house separation wasn't going to be an option. I knew marriage counseling, we had tried it and tried it and tried it. It wasn't going to work. He could talk his way in and out of everything. So you kind of, because a lot of women kind of go through that phase of, okay, let's go to the marriage count. I mean, I did that. Let's go to marriage counseling and see if we can like salvage this. And and then you just get, re, usually the victims get re-abused by the biblical counselors or, or their churches or whatever. Um, and which is even more traumatic and they have even more to heal from when they get out. But you, so you kind of s- skipped that part because you sort of already knew instinctively that that's what was going to happen to you. So I knew, and to be honest, the therapist that I went to was amazing. And oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> that is so, so good. I wish... I wish that for every abuse target so bad, but most of them don't have that. It's yes. so sad. And I, I mean, I didn't, I knew nobody in my sphere of friends or people that had been divorced. Nobody. Cause yeah. I was in a very conservative sphere. Um, but this, therapist that I went to was so good and she was amazing. She had worked with women that had been in my situation and she was phenomenal. She was like, get a lawyer, get a really good lawyer. So did you? (laughs) Yes. I got, I mean, literally after four weeks and made that decision I got a lawyer and I never talked to my ex again because I had a great therapist that said, go no contact. I had a lawyer that told me outright, change your phone number. I had great people that um, were like, nope, you don't text, you don't phone call. Only communication is email. Because they knew when you're dealing with people with behaviors, like my ex had exhibited, you have to put strong boundaries and protect yourself because it is a long, hard road. And I got a lawyer right from the beginning before I made any moves or decisions. And he was fabulous. That's wonderful. So what were some of the, tell us what some of the hardest, maybe one of the hardest things that you went through at, while you were going through your divorce process. And then maybe 
one of the most amazing things about going through that process for you as far as, you know, just as far as like, it's awesome just to get out, right? I mean, to be yeah. free and to not be exposed to all of that craziness. But um, was there anything that kind of stands out to you? Bad and good? Yeah, I think for me, the most the most difficult part of leaving was it was emotionally so difficult and so traumatizing because there was a huge loss of my local community and church community. Um, It was difficult for my children. My ex had a lot of stalking behaviors. Um, He ambushed me and my child at night with another man. Like it was just really contentious and really hard. So that was the really hard and most difficult part. But the most amazing part, I think, was the support that I had walking through it, that I had a good support system that helped me. So those times when I was struggling, they were able to help me. They were able to read the emails and say, don't even read this one (laughs) until you can. Um, And five cups of coffee. Um, Okay. So just a second though here, because it sounds like, it sounds like the good and the bad were, were so the bad part was that you lost community and people but then the good part was that you had support so obviously you didn't have your support was not from the community that you maybe would have thought you would have had support from right here's where my community came from I had gone to a Christian girls camp growing up was it Camp Karis it was yeah I think you and I have talked about this before yeah it was Camp Karis and those women in Maine surrounded me and walked with me through this process. Now, my local church in Florida did not. They listened to my ex. Mm -hmm. They allowed him to ruin my reputation. They actually showed up and spoke for him at my three-day trial. Um, Wow. Unbelievable. Yes. And even my former therapist, who was an elder at that church spoke for my ex and my child has even lost friendships because I didn't follow the script. I didn't follow the script of the evangelical local church Mm. that said, you stay no matter what. And so I'm sorry, but this kind of stuff just gets me. So I've been accused of being angry and bitter about this stuff, but you know what? I, I honestly, I don't know how anyone who's got any kind of heart, compassion, empathy, or love in them could not get angry about this. This is so reprehensible. And here's why, because this is what this they're doing it in the name of our savior. 
They're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. And right. that is, rep- that's why, I mean, I've got, I know people who have completely lost their faith in Christ because this is such a twisted satanic use of the church. And, um, I just, it's, it's still just so hard for me to wrap my brain around how this happens, but this is reality. This is abuse. The reason why we have so much abuse in private homes in the church at large is because there, because the church itself is abusive. The church is abusive. This is not love people. This is not love. This is not, this is nothing. There is absolutely nothing of Jesus Christ in any of this at all. Jesus never, ever took people, smashed their heads into the dirt and wiped their, wiped his mouth with their blood. Never did that. And that is what churches that did that to you, that did that to me, that did that to literally hundreds and hundreds of women that I've talked to, that's what they are doing. And if anyone's listening to this program and thinking, oh, you know, that's just a one-off example. This doesn't happen. No, 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 no. I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of women that this has happened to. This is a systemic problem in the church. And until you, you won't notice it until you raise your head and you speak out against it. And all of a sudden the wolves will come out in droves to chop your head off. But Anyway, I just had to go on a little rant there because I'm just, it just makes me so angry and I will be angry until the day I die over this. So if anyone's saying, oh, she's such an angry, bitter person, you go right ahead and say that. I'm proud of it. Yeah, because it is, it is systemic and it's happening. And do you know, not one person, I mean, people did not, reach out to me and it was really interesting that pastors that had never even been in my home were willing to come to my three-day trial to talk about how peaceful and kind my ex-husband was which was interesting because moments later the judge actually had to call the bailiff in because of his aggressive, my ex's aggressive behavior. So <laughs> in the courtroom. That which, had to feel kind of vindicating, right? Yes. To have him. Yeah. Yes, it was. So, but, you know, in the midst of that, I had great support from these women that I had grown up with. That were there and that were not as stuck in the fundamental Christian church. Because the church of Jesus Christ is alive and well, the true church. You just don't always find it in the building. Like the, the, you don't find it in the institution that's out there that has established itself. And you find it on the streets you find it in the coffee shops. You find it on Zoom meetings. You find yeah. it at the camps. You find it on that on that grassroots level. That is where Jesus, you find it where Jesus was. Jesus wasn't in the synagogue. He started out there until they excommunicated him and threatened to throw him off the cliff. 
But then where was Jesus? He was on the hillside. He was in the bars and the taverns. He was on the streets. He was where he was where the people were. That's where the church is today. You find it in the love and the kindness that people yes. are showing to each other. And I found that throughout my entire walk and I continue to find it. And I th- it, it's beautiful to continue to see the love and the kindness, which I think as survivors, we have to learn, which I think has been one of my biggest learning is to take that loving kindness that other people have shown me and shown it to myself. Yes. Because I think as survivors, we learned to take all that negativity that was given to us day by day by day. And we learned to speak that to ourselves. And so that love and that kindness I have had to learn to speak that and be loving and kind to myself and to take the love of Jesus and speak that love and that kindness to myself because that is where the healing happens and begins. Yeah. Okay, so Barb, what is one piece of advice that you'd give to someone who's contemplating leaving for good? Okay. I don't know that I can say one, but I'm going to say four really quick, if that's okay. Sure. (laughs) Get a great lawyer. Don't even think about it until you have a great lawyer. Um, No contact as much as possible. Only emails, if necessary. Build a great support system, however that may be whether it's flying free or local or long distance, get a support system. And most of all, be kind to yourself and work on yourself and building your resiliency because it is a long, hard journey and you have to be resilient. Yeah. I like that. All four of those. Amazing. Okay. So for those of you who are listening, one of the ways she mentioned flying free, one of the ways that you can get a support system as well as education and personal coaching is through the flying free sisterhood program. It only opens up every six months and it was just open in October of 2020. So the next opening will be April of 2021, but you can get on the waiting list if you go to joinflyingfree.com. Hop on the waiting list and we'll send you an email when it opens up again. And also, if you're new to the podcast and you'd like to get informed when a podcast episode comes out, which is every Wednesday, you can go to my website, flyingfreenow.com. And um, get on my mailing list. I don't spam anybody because I absolutely hate spam. And um, I, all I'll do is send you the podcast episode link. And you can go and read the transcript or listen. And I do write an article once in a while. 
And so I'll send you a link to an article if I write one. Once in a while, I also make a YouTube video. So, um, and then finally, what, what I've got coming up really soon is a brand new program that Barb is part of, and it's called Flying Higher. It is for divorced Christian women. So if you're a Christian woman who is already gone through the divorce process and you're out on the other side and you're kind of left feeling like you're looking at the rubble of your life and thinking, how do I even begin to rebuild this house? That's what Flying Higher is all about. And Flying Higher is a little more intense than Flying Free. It's a rebuilding program. It's a coaching program. Barb is actually going to be coaching inside of that program. Yay! I'm super excited. Barb and a couple of other coaches and then myself. And we do a weekly live class. We're going to have a couple of coaching sessions a week for one monthly price. And um, it's a lot cheaper than getting private coaching, but it's also, also extremely transformative. That's opening up on January 27th, 2021. And if you want to hear more about that, learn more about it and get on the waiting list for that, you can go to joinflyinghigher.com and get on the waiting list. And we will send you some information about that when it opens back up again. So I want to let everyone know what your options are. So your free option is just to go to flyingfreenow.com. Get on that mailing list. It's free, no charge. I The only thing I ever try to sell you is if you want to get into flying free, when it opens up, I'll let you know. And then, so flying free is flying, joinflyingfree.com. And if you're already divorced and you need something for to help you support you through that, it's joinflyinghigher.com. So, and then don't forget that Barb also has her own private coaching practice at integrativecoachingforlife.com. That's integrativecoachingforlife.com. Did I sound like a radio person there? Integrativecoachingforlife.com. That's integrativecoachingforlife.com. Okay, sorry. But at least you guys all <laughs> you guys all have it now, right? So Barb is over there. You can check out her um, her packages, her coaching packages, and get some private help from her if you'd like. She also has um, you can hear her whole butterfly story within the Flying Free program, and of course she'll be coaching in Flying Higher. So Barb, thank you so much for sharing your story here on the Flying Free podcast. Appreciate your time. And for those of you who are listening, thank you for listening. Until next time, fly free.